I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I have a conversation with noted historian and author Emily Bingham. Emily joins me to discuss her latest book titled My Old Kentucky Home. And the book dismantles the myths behind the anthem of the same name, My Old Kentucky Home, which happens to be the Kentucky State Anthem. In fact, it's a tradition to perform this anthem at the Kentucky Derby, which happens during the first week of May. Emily Bingham examines the problematic history of the song and dismantles the many myths surrounding it. So please enjoy my conversation with Emily Bingham. Emily Bingham, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. I'm excited to be talking. So the Kentucky Derby, it's upon us. You know, in May, first week of May, thousands of people will gather at Churchill Downs and they'll participate in this kind of long-standing tradition of singing the state anthem, which is my old Kentucky home. Now, you wrote a whole book about the anthem. But, you know, before we get into the book, I'm curious about the Kentucky Derby itself. I've never been, but you grew up in (laughs) Kentucky. What's it like? What's the atmosphere like? Well, that's great that you ask because we really are in this derby season. People walk around town here and say to each other, how's your derby or happy derby? And it goes on for at least a couple of weeks before and the parties begin and people are rushing around, literally looking for their clothes. I have an 18-year-old son who's going to go to the infield for the first time and he's, you know, wants to buy some goofy, you know, blazer. (laughs) (laughs) We're hoping to go to Goodwill or something. But yeah, that's what people literally, uh, a lot of people are doing. There are all these other sorts of, you know, races, bike races, road races, go-kart races, you know, pig races, you know, that get done. And you have like the Derby fillies who get crowned as, you know, with the princesses, the sort of beauty queens. And it, it goes from one to another. Oh, we have a parade. And then this Saturday, a massive fireworks display called Thunder over Louisville. So it's sort of preparing us for those thundering hooves that will be roaring down the track at Churchill Downs right after they sing My Old Kentucky Home. Yeah. From what I can tell, it seems like an event where people, you know, you can see and be seen, right? There are lots of celebrities that attend the Kentucky Derby. There's kind of this pageantry from what I can tell. That is a really big part of it. And, you know, everyone, you know, calls it the greatest two minutes in sports because the race itself is uh, very brief. However, just the what's kind of grown around it, you know, it has a little bit to do with old notions about racing, you know, people wearing hats and dressing up for, you know, important races like you might imagine in England or something. But it's gotten to be much more of just an all-American event. On the other hand, there's nothing like it, right? There's the Indy 500 isn't like it. The Super Bowl isn't like it. It just, the horses are, you know, they're animals. They're beautiful. There's, you know, 150,000 people and they come for usually a whole weekend, right? So even though it's like the shortest, shortest sporting (laughs) event, it seems (laughs) to have the most built around it. Yeah. I actually didn't know that it was only just a few minutes. Wow. Yeah. It's a mile and a quarter and it takes a world record is just under two minutes for getting (laughs) to the, from, you know, starting gate to finish line. And, you know, the other thing is it is a, the longest running American sporting event, right? So that's, I think, very important for listeners to get the feeling that there's no sporting event in our history that has more tradition really attached to it. It, Just because it's been going since 1875 without, well, there've been minor interruptions, but it's never completely stopped. So that's a big point of pride. And I think it also 
tends to encourage this sense of nostalgia or, you know, traditionalism. And that can mean a lot of different things, whether it's just rituals of dressing up or drinking mint juleps, but also, you know, sometimes some political overtones to those traditions. Yeah, which is where the anthem comes in. Um, you know, ironically, I went to school just across the river in Cincinnati at the University of Cincinnati, and I attended the music conservatory different lifetime. Oh, wow. But, you know, so when I listen to the anthem and I listen to it online and I watch some performances of it, it's actually, you know, from my expert opinion, <laughs> it's a nice melody, right? It has a really nice chord progression and it does everything that an anthem should do melodically, right? It's, you know, it rouses all the right emotions in people. And when I watch videos of it, people actually cry, you know, when they're singing it and listening to it. For real. Yeah, it is <laughs> extremely potent. And hey, I think your professional, you know, musical ear or your trained musical ear is really a good thing to make sure is understood. I mean, this is the work of, in some ways, a master of melody. And I talked to one head of the vocal department at the University of Kentucky who said it's really one of the only state anthems that can kind of stand on its own. So even without the lyrics, it's a good enough melody and it's singable, it's memorable, it's hummable. And yes, it was written in 1853. So it's even older than the Kentucky Derby. And, you know, our nation has a complicated history. So it's probably not really surprising that the song might too. Yeah, it's really anthem anthem. <laughs> it's very anthem -y. And you mentioned the thing about crying, actually. Let me just yeah. interject because the song itself, the chorus to the song, it starts out, the sun shines bright on the old Kentucky home, right? But then the chorus is, weep no more, my lady, weep no more today. We will sing one song for the old Kentucky home, right? And so it's almost as if that weep no more is like the opposite, like a permission to cry. So, you know? Right. Yeah. So I think that's really interesting psychologically, too. Before we go into the analysis of the song, should I just read the first verse? I'll post it in the show notes, but I don't know. Yeah, I think it would be great. Sure. Okay, so I'll just read the first verse. The sun shines bright in the old Kentucky home. To summer, the darkies are gay. The corn tops ripe and the meadows in the bloom, while the birds make music all day. The young folks roll on the little cabin floor, all merry, all happy and bright. By and by, hard times comes a knocking at the door, then my old Kentucky home. Good night. Now, <laughs> so we should mention that the composer is Stephen Foster, right? What is the song about and what was it intended to be about and whose perspective is it sung from? Yeah, thank you. Those are really important questions to try to untangle. And you read the original first verse, right? And right. so I think in that original first verse, you know, probably your listeners picked up a word that is absolutely not said anymore <laughs> and that is understood to be uh, insulting, a slur, and incredibly degrading to Black people. But it's, I think, also crucial to acknowledge it because that is what was heard for the first hundred and something years of this song being sung in public. And even today, there are people who hold to that tradition. So it, it is interesting because it was written by Stephen Foster, who was a white man from Pittsburgh, who was trying to make a living as a songwriter in the 1850s. And that was a very 
difficult challenge at the time because we didn't have a music business as we do today. And he was writing for a genre of music that was the most popular music of the day. And you've probably heard of something called blackface minstrelsy. We know it from, you know, scandals of governors who wore blackface in for Halloween parties or something in graduate school. But really, this was, we haven't gone very deep to understanding that this truly was the most ubiquitous, all-American entertainment show business thing of the 19th century. And it was sort of our great invention, considered great by the world. And so he was writing for minstrel performers who were white men with black faces that they'd use makeup to darken, who sang as if they were black enslaved people, usually sometimes free black people. And so they were acting out these kind of roles. And in this case, this song produced specifically for the biggest blackface minstrel show of the, of the day called Christie's Minstrels. And this would be sung as if it were an enslaved man being sold away from his happy home of slavery, but still a happy home in Kentucky. And the subsequent verses show that person leaving Kentucky and dying at the hands of, well, of the deep south, of the overwork or whatever it might be that would take his life far from the people he loved. And then the chorus, which I mentioned before, is sort of as if addressed to the people left behind, perhaps his wife, perhaps his partner. And so it is a song about the slave trade. <laughs> I don't think right. we can really get around that. And it is remarkable for the fact that it you know, embodies an enslaved person's perspective. However, as many, many, many scholars and other critics and observers have helped us understand that blackface minstrels were not really trying to speak or send the messages that <laughs> enslaved people would have sent. They were creating an image of what slavery was that was out of their own fantasies and out of their own wishfulness. And so this sort of sad but you know pathetic character who unresistingly gets ripped from, you know, his family gets ripped apart in front of his eyes. And then he sort of sings this song comfortingly to weep no more as he is being torn from everything he knows. And, you know, also to even idealize the slavery experience in Kentucky is not exactly, you know, something we would think of as a very sympathetic way to portray the institution. Right. I actually wanted to read the original verse to, you know, to give people a sense of its origins, because over time, the lyrics have changed, right, to, to I guess, make it seem more palatable. Yeah. But the sentiment is, is still basically the same. Is that fair? I mean, I think the sentiment of looking back fondly at old days, whether that's, you know, I mean, in this case, it was the plantation, Right. But, you know, broadening that out to anybody's past is, you know, something that a good song can do. It can take the very specific thing and make it seem more general. But there's no way to get around, even if you remove that offensive word, which it took a long, long time to do, but did eventually happen officially. This song is sort of grounded in Black pain, right? In institutionalized cruelty and atrocity. 
And so I think what's remarkable is, you know, even in, in Stephen Foster's version, slavery is in some ways whitewashed, right? Because there's a good place to have slavery and it's called Kentucky. Right. <laughs> um, but then once we get to the point in the later 20th century, when that offensive word is finally after generations of protests lifted out, we have a situation where slavery and that history is almost just ghosted altogether. Yeah. So in the introduction of your book, you talk about a story where your father was, I think he was in the Marines and he was stationed in Japan at the time, maybe a decade after the end of World War II. And he heard Mm -hmm. some children in Japan singing this anthem. How did that happen? One of my real regrets is that between COVID and other life things, I never got to Japan. I've never been there to sort of dig into the Japanese side of the saga of the song. But yeah, it was a moment in his life that he described as one of the most surreal experiences ever. And he just pulled up in front of in this small town and he could hear a sound and it was so odd. He had to stop and turns out it was little children in a schoolyard being you know, led in a singing of my old Kentucky home. Well, turns out that blackface minstrelsy and the songs of Stephen Foster with it were, as I said, like our most significant, in some ways, cultural invention of the 19th century. So minstrel songs were performed all over the world. And these troops went around and toured world tours in the 1850s. (laughs) And so, you know, there were emperors, kings, royalty, presidents, all who experienced the minstrel show. Like that was just something people did. And So in Japan, which opened up to the West around the time that Blackface Minstrelsy and Stephen Foster songs were popular, this made a sort of landing. And then later, his melodies were used in some songs that were sort of, I don't know, like nursery songs, right, that students were taught in Japanese. But then they were also used to teach English. So come full circle, through the 20th century, you have millions and millions of Japanese people literally know Stephen Foster songs word by word, by heart. And in 1986, there was a particular group of uh, sort of ministry that brought Japanese students over to the United States for a people-to-people kind of immersion in American culture. And they went on a road trip around Kentucky. They were based in Ohio. They went on a road trip around Kentucky and they stopped at a tourist attraction called My Old Kentucky Home, which features in the book. But they also stopped at the state capitol. And in front of the state legislature, they stood up and sang My Old Kentucky Home as they knew it. And that was 1986. And at first, uh, you know, well, everybody stood up, put their hands over their hearts, and some of them, I'm sure, got tears in their eyes. But then when the D word came out, it was kind of a shock. But again, everyone kept standing except one black representative who sat down and and he made it his business to try to officially do something about the lyrics to our state anthem. Right. So that was, you said, 1986? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so the the original version of the lyrics, the one that I sang, people were still singing that then, which is kind of incredible to think about. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So there's this gap between, I guess, the more modern version of the song, you know, people singing at the Kentucky Derby, how it's perceived 
and its actual meaning, right? And, you know, some people have defended it as being, and correct me if I'm wrong, an anti-slavery song or like a celebratory song against slavery. Is that correct? People have made that argument and I strongly disagree with it. Yeah. I think what really has happened, and this is what our culture has done around slavery and racism and Jim Crow, which this song also intersects with in important ways. What we've tried to do is comfort ourselves that it wasn't that bad and that we're over that, or it's, you know, it's really not a problem anymore. And if it was ever a problem, it's not really so anymore. And I think what most people who sing and hear and look forward to this song, they don't associate it with those things at all. I mean, they've, we've forgotten that that's where it came from. Why would we forget that? Because it is in the interest of, of a society that has done those kind of things to probably not remember, but to turn it into a song that's used in a setting that's so celebratory, that's so almost like tribal and ritualistic, right? As before the Kentucky Derby, or for that matter, a University of Kentucky basketball game, or even the opening of our state legislature, nobody is standing up and holding their hand over their heart or taking their hat off and thinking about the woes or the seriousness of our historic crimes against humanity. <laughs> They're thinking about their own sentimental satisfaction. But that's basically what the, I think, the culture around the Kentucky Derby is about, right? And so I'd imagine that, you know, changing that piece of the culture would be very hard. Yeah, but I want to talk a bit about Stephen Foster himself, because like you said, he wrote the song or composed it in 1853. And I think he was, he must have been around 25 or 26 at the time, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, who was he and what was going on in his life at the time and what was going on in the country, particularly in Kentucky, that inspired the song in the first place? Mm. Yeah. So he was born in the 1820s into what I think we can understand was a rapidly industrializing new nation. It was still a very young nation. And one of the things that was bothered some people about this new nation was that it still seemed very derivative culturally, like it hadn't kind of figured out who it was and, you know, didn't have that many great writers or great musicians or great actors. People were coming over from England or things were being imported a lot, right? So he was interesting in many ways and has been embraced and lifted up as the father of American music because he did compose many songs people will know, Camp Town Races or Oh Susanna, as some of his melodies as well that have been handed down to us. Those also were blackface minstrel songs, right. so good to note. So he was in Pittsburgh, again, on the Ohio River, which the main trade routes and economic you know, highways of the time were, were rivers, and they were carrying cotton and other agricultural goods from the South and rural areas to cities, and then back the other way, carrying finished goods. And his whole family was just deeply involved in all of those kinds of trades and the ups and downs that went with him. And he he was kind of a rebel. He didn't want to go into business. He really loved music, even from a very early age, but it was just unheard of to try to make a living doing that. And the reason was it was very difficult to have an income. And the only way you could do it was by selling sheet music, right? That people would buy. And that's part of why the minstrels that he wrote for were so important because they would popularize the songs. 
And then if they got popular enough, people would say, oh, I heard that song. I want to, you know, I'd like to take that at home so I can play it on my piano. So that's kind of the culture of that. But politically, our nation was at a very difficult, tender and violent also crossroads where we were expanding westward. And as everyone will know, there was a part of the nation where slavery was you know, institutionalized and legal and a part of the country where it was not. And those in the South wanted the new lands, the new states to have their institution be legal. And a lot of forces in the North, mainly just for the sake of competition, not like liberal values, <laughs> didn't want that. So we were heading for a showdown. And part of the showdown of the 1850s was this kind of compromise that somehow we could compromise our way out of the conflict that ended us up with the Civil War. And out of that were you know, things like the Fugitive Slave Act, which meant that if somebody did escape slavery, they could be returned to the people who claimed them as property. And, and that even happened that you know people who weren't enslaved were captured and sold into slavery. So there was a lot of fervor. There were abolitionists who were extremely upset about the human rights involved but there are also just a lot of people who wanted this to go away and wanted us to just continue as a nation and not fight over slavery. And you know, some people think that Foster may have personally been sympathetic to anti-slavery, but if this were really an anti-slavery song, I don't think that it would have been as it, it just wasn't. I mean, anti-slavery groups did not adopt this song. In fact, an anti-slavery poet wrote his own version, his own lyrics for the song, because even Foster's were absolutely not helping his cause. So, yeah. And then you know, I think it's just interesting, you know, think about how he took a very brutal story about slavery and he kind of softened it, like he took the edges off it. And some people have compared this to Uncle Tom's Cabin, which showed the brutalities of slavery. And it's kind of like there in my old Kentucky home, but it's so buried and so softened around the edges that it turns something that is, you know, more deeply, obviously cruel into something kind of cottoned over with sentiment instead of facing any kind of reality. You know, did he ever sell it as an anti-slavery song or was that something that was attached to it, you know, outside of his own like position? I mean, to our knowledge, he never did. No. And there aren't that many records, you know, so we can't really ask him directly the right. questions we would like to. It's really only much, much, much later in the 20th century that some people have have embraced or tried to advance that argument. And, you know, I can see from our perspective today that might, you know, that's a very appealing argument, especially appealing if you have been, you know, built a whole culture and a whole ritual around <laughs> this song. And it's important to remember, too, that even Kentucky didn't adopt this song until it was 75 years old. It wasn't like this was the true institutionalization of my old Kentucky home. You know, first, it's like a northern product. OK, right. And secondly, it becomes truly institutionalized in Kentucky and signaling, you know, all things southern only in the height of Jim Crow when you know, the sort of plantation myth and the idea of the lost cause become so popular across this country. You know, for some reason, when I was reading reading the book, I couldn't stop thinking about it, actually, you know, that whole movement, which started a few years ago, of removing those Confederate flags, right? 
and, you know, the arguments made around why they should stick around. Mm -hmm. It seems like there's a very similar emotional attachment to this anthem, especially, you know, its attachment to the Kentucky Derby. I don't know if that's a fair comparison or not, but that's what I kept thinking of. Yeah. I mean, I have sometimes talked about this song as a sonic monument, and that does compare in some ways to the physical monuments to the Confederacy that so controversial and that we've been processing, I think, the meaning of in a new way in the last decade or two. But if it is a sonic monument, it is a sonic monument to a segregated memory of what this country is. There have been Black people who have opposed this song and resisted this song and tried to make it work for them instead of work against them for ever since, you know, practically it became published. And beginning with that anti-slavery, you know, abolitionist poet who has wrote his own lyrics for it. And those voices have just been resisted over and over, over time. And I think the holding on to, I mean, this is our history. I mean, but we get to choose what we hold, right? We should learn about our history, but I think it is up to us to understand what we claim to love. Like I, I would never tell someone not to love a melody or love a song, but is it not important to know what it is that that is rooted in and weigh that? And I also think it's tricky. You know, we live in a time where people want immediate results to right wrongs, but I think this is a great opportunity to think about the way that assumptions about race and the sort of building of a on the economic and emotional satisfaction on racist bases, right? That we can work through it. We aren't going to be able to just turn a switch, right? Because this is so deeply embedded. And I think in that sense, it's a metaphor for the much larger work of reckoning, right? I would never say that just changing one song is going to like, you know, change the world. I think it's more the process of thinking about it that can help us think about the larger ways that the institutionalized culture and economies and structures can you know, deserve our attention. So that's, you know, I'm, I'm not out here to just say wave a wand and everyone's, you know, should turn off all the emotions they've ever felt about this. No, let's talk about it. Yeah. I mean, you know, to be fair, I don't know. And I, I can't get into the minds and hearts of people who sing the anthem, the Kentucky Derby. I would imagine they aren't thinking very deeply about its meaning, right? It's just the tradition and the ritual and the pageantry around it. And yeah, and once people do, Jennifer, I mean, once they hear what it is about, I've rarely met anyone who didn't pause, you know, who didn't feel the appropriateness of pausing and at least, you know, taking that information in. And one way to, you know, express this perhaps would be German people before soccer games don't sing songs about the Holocaust. And, um, you know, South Africans don't sing songs about apartheid, you know, when they're getting ready for cricket matches. The fact that we do have this song that has evolved in such a way and wormed its way into our hearts and our culture and our institutions, which are all white controlled, right, for the most part, and I show that for sure in the in the book, it's a lesson for us and, you know, in self-understanding. But it also you know, in times like 2020, it can be very painful when the whole country is trying to do better and trying to look at ways to be more equitable and acknowledge the dignity of all life. But also in times like this, 
when we're collectively trying to do better, you have this resistance. And sometimes trying to do better inspires stronger resistance, right? Which we saw in the efforts to remove those Confederate statues. So, you know, I would imagine that, you know, trying to (laughs) extract this anthem from the, you know, the rituals around the Kentucky Derby would be really hard right now. Yeah. I mean, Mitch McConnell spoke out about it a couple of years ago. He said that it was absurd to consider ever letting go of such an all-American and, you know, marvelous tradition embedded in our society. And he said, you know, something like, didn't we take care of that, you know, (laughs) 50 years ago when, you know, we got rid of the D word, like there's no no problem. But again, I think this ghosting of our past is not in our long-term interest. And we are capable, I think, of knowing, you know, that we are emotional people. We latch onto things because that's what we are built to do. And yet we can choose, you know, what to get ourselves really emotional about if we if we want to. And I love Eleanor Roosevelt has a line where she says to some college students in the 60s, she says, study history realistically. You will love your country just as much. No, you're absolutely right. That's really powerful. <laughs> I think that kind of sums up, I think, my feelings about the song. I mean, you can remember history and you can even, you know, study it, but you don't have to necessarily celebrate it. And that's what's happening right now because it's included in this kind of whole event, right? It's being celebrated. Yeah. And the way that that came about is to me, you know, just, again, a microcosm of the way that so many things that we don't want to celebrate have been wrapped into our cultural and political DNA. And it's just, it is possible to step back and take a pause and really hear. I've had Friends who are Black, uh, one friend who was in the sit-ins in Louisville, desegregating public accommodations as a young girl, as a teenager. And she has looked at me in the eyes and said simply, Emily, why? Why do you love this song so much? And she meant, you know, people who look like me. I come from a privileged and white, you know, Kentucky family. And, you know, my only answer is most people don't know. But that that forgetting or that lack of knowledge is built into the system and it doesn't have to continue. We have an opportunity. We have an opportunity to sit in this moment. I just hope we don't try to run through it too quickly or be discouraged by the people who are uncomfortable. You know, know, history is not a safe place. Life is not a safe place, but we are here to uh, help each other understand. And I think we can do better and we can still sing beautiful songs. <laughs> there are a lot of them out there. Yeah. Well, Emily Bingham, thank you so much for joining me. And thank you for writing this book. It's really important. Um, my old Kentucky home. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you, Jennifer. 